Coming up this evening, live from New York City. Another sign the housing market is slowing down. The price of lumber down 50% in the past two months. To ban or not to ban Russian oil? Europe said it would, but now its leaders don't seem so sure. An American investment firm could be profiting from China's zero-COVID policy. How? That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here for NTD Business. In a sign the housing market and the overall economy is slowing, the price of lumber is falling back down to earth. The demand for homes seems to be falling as interest rates rise. That means builders aren't so confident the good times will last. Builder sentiment is falling. Lumber, of course, is a key material for new homes. Lumber costs have fallen by 50% in the past two months, according to Random Lens, indicating a slowdown in demand. But lumber sales may also be falling because builders don't feel under pressure to stock up as much. Last year, a lumber shortage pushed people to stock up on whatever they could find. But this year, there is more availability and less panic. Lumber used for home DIY projects has also fallen out of favor recently. Maybe all the projects are finally finished, just in time for Memorial Day weekend, it seems. And happy Memorial Day weekend, by the way. Enjoy what's left of it. Inflation, as well as the war in Ukraine, we've heard it before, is hitting smartphone maker Samsung, supportedly cutting smartphone production this year by about 10%. 30 million phones, according to a major Korean business news outlet. According to the report, Samsung originally planned to produce 310 million smartphones. Now they're reducing it to 280. report quoted a Samsung official who said high prices and the Russian war behind the cut. Samsung suspended sales in Russia when the war began. It sold about 7 million smartphones in the country last year. But Samsung's not the only one to pull back production. Nikkei recently reported that Apple is also cutting production of some phones this year. It's because high prices are hitting demand for its lower-end phones. Overall, the global smartphone market is slowing down. Shipments dropping 11% in the first quarter compared to the same period last year. And an Arizona man is facing multiple charges after allegedly stealing a massive number of catalytic converters. Detective found a huge stash, 1,200 of them, in a storage unit in Phoenix. Catalytic converters, of course, are part of the car's exhaust system used to cut down emissions. They're pretty expensive. Replacing them can cost from $1,000 to $3,000. But recently, thefts of these converters have skyrocketed from $4,000 in 2019 to $52,000 last year. It's about 12 times more. Part of the reason is they contain certain types of precious metals like platinum, palladium, and rhodium. They're much more valuable now. Germany's inflation, already at record-breaking highs, is getting worse. Could hit 7.9% in May, the highest since 1973. That was when an oil crisis happened after OPEC imposed an oil embargo on countries that supported Israel during the Yom Kippur War. Germany this time around has blamed the war in Ukraine, rising energy prices and supply problems caused by COVID. Energy rose by 38.83% compared to the same period last year. Price of food rose by 11.1%. Of course, the European Central Bank's loose monetary policy is also highly inflationary. Germany now wants to help people by giving them discounts for gas and public transportation. But economists say this might even lead to higher prices.
President of the European Commission proposed banning Russian oil back in early May, you may remember. European leaders are divided about actually implementing it. The meeting in Brussels to discuss, and it looks like we might see a watered-down version. Dirishan Marshall has more. The EU oil ban, an idea proposed in early May, is facing tremendous headwinds. Leaders say they most likely won't finalize a deal soon, as they arrived at a summit in Brussels. A big obstacle is Hungary, which is hungry for Russian oil. Sanctions on oil, without answering the questions which related to the Hungarian energy supply security. So the whole situation we are in is a, is a, is a difficult one created by the Commission. But Hungary says it might support sanctions that only apply to oil brought by tankers, which allow landlocked nations like itself to continue receiving oil through pipelines. Around 70 to 85 percent of Russia's imported crude is shipped from ports on the Baltic Sea and the Black Sea. Only 4 to 8 percent goes to the EU through pipelines. And this is happening as a new report estimates that the EU's Repower EU plan, which aims to cut dependency on both Russia and fossil fuels in general, substantially by 2030 may cost at least 1 trillion euros. This is more than the combined GDPs of Sweden and Austria. This problem of the plan is that it's far too aggressive, that it's impossible to implement in the short term. Daniel Lacaille is the author of The Energy World is Flat and the chief economist at the Tresses Hedge Fund. Lacaille believes the EU should let its industries freely build the regasification terminals, networks, distribution, and grid with an industrial perspective rather than a political one. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Despite rising inflation in China, the Chinese city of Shenzhen is handing out $4.5 million worth of free digital money to residents in an attempt to stimulate consumption in the economy battered by the pandemic and lockdowns. A city in China's northern Hubei province is doing something similar. It launched a campaign to hand out over $7 million worth of Chinese digital yuan. China, of course, at the forefront of a global race to develop central bank digital currencies. Transactions using the digital yuan totaled $87 billion at the end of 2021, according to China's central bank. Critics of the currency say it could be used by the central bank as a surveillance tool over users. May get one in the States, though. Watch out. And that an American company might have a financial stake in China's zero-COVID policy. Private equity firm Carlyle Group is the biggest shareholder of Chinese medical firm Atticon Holdings, which made hundreds of millions through mass virus testing as part of the zero-COVID policy. And then Don Ma is more. The Carlyle Group is based in Washington and is one of the world's largest investment firms. David Rubenstein co-founded the group and currently serves as co-chairman. Carlyle invested millions in Atticon in 2018 and became its largest shareholder. The Carlyle Group expects that China's testing market will see significant growth amid the pandemic. And with Carla's support, Atticon has been expanding its network of laboratories in China. From 2020 to 2021, Atticon made about $300 million through COVID testing in China. Though Atticon is not the only Chinese company Carla has investments in, the private equity firm has been investing in China for over 20 years in a slew of different companies, including Chinese healthcare provider Meinan One Health, biopharmaceutical company Salbris, and medical group Zhongmei Healthcare. China's zero-COVID policy of constantly monitoring and testing its citizens is a boon to the country's medical sector. 
For example, first quarter profit more than doubled for one of China's largest virus test manufacturers. Hangzhou-based Dian Diagnostics Group's revenue jumped more than 60 percent to nearly $700 million. Beijing is on track to spend more than $52 billion this year, a quarter of New York's 2021 GDP, on mass virus testing and other zero-COVID measures. But that may not be such a good investment. A number of experts have criticized China's mass testing measure. A professor of epidemiology at the University of California, Los Angeles, says that because of the strong infectious nature of the Omicron variant, mass testing can actually lead to an increased risk of cross-infection. Don Ma, NTD News. It seems like mass testing could be here to stay over in China. The country is setting up thousands of permanent PCR testing stations, 9,000 already completed in Shanghai. Chinese authorities are seeking to, quote, normalize tough pandemic controls even after lockdowns end. We reached out to Carlisle Group but didn't get a response before airtime. With Moscow already designated Elon Musk's Starlink internet system a military obstacle, now Chinese researchers are also viewing the Starlink satellite network as a possible military threat. They're threatening back. Anthony Shaw Marshall has more. Chinese military researchers claim that if Starlink satellites become a national security threat, the Chinese military needs to have the ability to destroy them. The paper published last month says... China needs to develop anti-satellite capabilities and a surveillance system with unprecedented scale and sensitivity to track and monitor every Starlink satellite. Brandon Weikert, author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, sees Starlink as a definite military advantage. So China is trying to figure out how they can deprive deprive us of that potential advantage. And what we need to do is protect that potential advantage by saying it will be an act of war, China, if you even think about targeting those systems. Russia's invasion of Ukraine showed the world Starlink's military capabilities, which had Elon Musk tweeting about his life possibly being in danger. Musk has given 40 Starlink terminals to the Ukrainians, and in so doing, Musk has shown that it is now extremely difficult for Russia to disconnect Ukraine from the wider global telecommunication system. Weikert's opinion is that SpaceX is the only thing keeping the U.S. in the space race with China. The Biden administration needs to drop its political opposition to Musk and just give him a wide berth to do what he needs to in space. Starlink now reaches over 400,000 subscribers in 36 countries around the world, with service recently approved in Nigeria, Mozambique, and the Philippines. Sean Marshall, NTD News. And the parent company of India's ShareChat has raised nearly 300 million in new funds from Google and two other groups. The app has been valued at nearly 5 billion, according to Reuters, and Google's investment in a bearish market for Indian startups shows the appetite for short videos there. Short video apps like Moj and Josh shot up in popularity after India in 2020 banned TikTok and some other Chinese apps follow a border clash with China. If the bid by Tesla CEO Elon Musk goes through to buy Twitter, Musk will potentially have a stake of between 6% and 8% in share chat. And crypto and politics. Could that be a good match? One of the richest crypto billionaires says he wants to donate nearly all of his wealth to make the world a better place. And some of that cash is going towards U.S. elections. And Denise Phil Zoe has more. 
Sam Bankman-Fried said he expects to give $100 million at a minimum to the 2024 presidential elections, which could make him one of the biggest political donors ever. Rich people donate to political causes. Sam Bankman-Fried is the CEO of one of the largest crypto exchanges across the globe, FTX. With a net worth of over $20 billion, SBF, as he's sometimes known as, has said he's willing to donate almost all of his fortune, leaving behind only 1%. A lot of these political donations are because they can feel regulation breathing down their necks. David Girard is a cryptocurrency analyst. He's also the author of two crypto books, Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain and Libra Shrugged. Sam Bankman-Fried, he's young. He's only 30. He's a fresh billionaire. He hit this business that exploded, and suddenly he's got more money than he ever knew what to do with before. But if former President Donald Trump is involved in the next presidential election, SBF says he'll contribute up to $1 billion, which would make him the biggest political donor of all time. They want this so that they can further the cause of cryptocurrency. They've made a lot of money during this asset bubble, and they're hoping that will continue if the bubble goes down. SBF is just one of the few crypto players who are donating to politics. Coinbase co-founder Fred Ersom and Gemini Exchange founder Tyler Winklevoss has also donated to political campaigns in the past. Phil Zoe, NTD News. By the way, if you have any tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. And this evening, still to come, the FDA is investigating a hepatitis outbreak in three states. Could be linked to strawberries. Top Gun Maverick soars as Tom Cruise's best box office debut ever. How much do you think they'll earn by tonight? That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. The FDA is investigating an outbreak of hepatitis A in three states that's potentially linked to strawberries. Federal health officials say there have been 17 hepatitis A cases reported as part of the outbreak in California, Minnesota, and North Dakota. There have been 12 hospitalizations so far. The brands involved are Fresh Campo and HEB. They were sold at Aldi, Kroger, Safeway, Sprouts, Trader Joe's, and Walmart, among a few others. Most of the illnesses were reported between March 28th and April 30th, but hepatitis A symptoms can last up to two months. If consumers purchased or froze any of the strawberries, the FDA says they should be thrown away immediately. And it was a pretty chaotic holiday weekend for many people traveling by air. More than 6,000 global flights have been canceled since Friday, with hundreds more delayed. It's according to flight tracking website FlightAware. It says there were already more than 1,200 cancellations Monday morning, including more than 300 flights traveling within, into, or out of the U.S. More than 1,600 flights were canceled on Sunday alone. Delta Airlines is heavily affected by the cancellations. It had more than 500 domestic and international flights axed Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Carrier blames Saturday's cancellations on bad weather and air traffic control actions that took place Friday. AAA estimated 3 million Americans would travel by air over the holiday weekend. Safe travels if you're flying. And also over the long weekend, actor Tom Cruise's long-awaited Top Gun Maverick made its global debut. 
and pulled in a projected $151 million in the U.S. as the biggest opening weekend haul of the star's career. It's a long career. Lisa Bernhardt reports. Tom Cruise may have pulled off one of the greatest feats of his career. Top Gun Maverick, the long-awaited sequel to his 1986 blockbuster original, opened to a projected $151 million over the four-day Memorial Day weekend in the U.S., making it the highest-grossing film debut of his career and his first to surpass $100 million on an opening weekend. Credit dazzling reviews, loads of nostalgia, and Cruz's return to the cockpit as Navy pilot Pete Maverick Mitchell, the actor telling Reuters the role is truly one he relishes. I have such a passion and love for aviation. We just had a lot of fun. Top Gun Maverick was scheduled to open the summer of 2020 until the health crisis scrambled those plans. Moviegoers who flocked to the original, namely people now over 40, turned out in force which is impressive given that that demographic has been the most reluctant to return to theaters. Distributor Paramount Pictures hopes the film's strong word of mouth helps attract those not yet born when the original opened 36 years ago. An interestingly stellar debut is actually without the Russian or Chinese market. It seems Paramount isn't planning to show the movie in China. Chinese tech firm Tencent recently withdrew its investment from the film. Insiders say it's afraid of being linked with a movie that promotes the American military. When we think of Mex Mexican food, what comes to mind? Fajitas, tacos, enchiladas? What about mole? So quintessential to Mexican food that even a festival is named after it. Here's the story. Over the weekend, Chicago's Mexican community hosted a three-day Mexican festival, Mole de Mayo, honoring the Mexican cuisine mole, meaning sauce. Alex Esparza, CEO of Economic Strategies Development Corps, the organizer of the event, says the event honors mole and more. Mole de Mayo, mole itself is a sauce, it's a Mexican uh, cuisine, it's from uh, Mexican gastronomy. So what it means for us is the sign of gathering. So we bring the cuisine, we bring the lucha libre, we bring the art display. So it just, it just spells out Mexican culture all the way around. Mole is considered Mexico's national dish. It is used widely as a dressing for meat and grains. It's made of many ingredients, so it has a huge variety of flavors. Every year, the judges choose one winner at the festival. Carlos Aguilar, one of the judges, says the moles are judged beyond the taste. We qualify flavor, uh, how does it look, the history, the recipe, presentation, uh, texture. This year's winner is Ivolina's Tamales, owned by Lina Hernandez. She's won five years in a row. Hernandez's mole recipe has been passed down from her grandmother. She shares her secret recipe. <laughs> My secret, the love, the passion, you know, the, we always, we make the mole, we are happy. In addition to Mexican cuisine, visitors also got a taste of Mexican dancing. Selena Sanchez is part of the indigenous dance group Aztec Dance. The Aztecs are an ancient civilization in Mesoamerica, now known as Central America, between 1300 and 1521. Their dance is an important ritual honoring their gods in Mexican culture. We take turns dancing. Everybody does their own dance. Um, each dance represents a different thing, like rain, the corn dance, the fire dance. 
Um, so yeah, everybody just takes turns like going around the circle and um, giving the dance to everybody else until it completes. Mole de Mayo has been a popular event in Chicago's Mexican community, the Pilsen neighborhood, since 2009. In 2019, it received 130,000 people over the three-day festival. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News. And over in Jordan, one farm is using aeroponic and hydroponic methods to grow more with less water. The designer Thomas is more. In the rural area of Jarosh City, Jordan, Faisal Farm grows a variety of crops using only a marginal amount of water. Cherry tomatoes and green leafy vegetables are grown in vertical rows and irrigated using water-saving technologies. Jordan is considered one of the poorest countries in terms of water. Therefore, I always advise and encourage the use of hydroponics because it saves 90% of water compared to traditional farming. The manager of the farm considers it a prototype for the future of agriculture in the arid kingdom. He says aeroponics and hydroponics are among the country's most viable options to develop its agricultural sector. Aeroponics is a new system that we experimented with in Jordan. It is an aerial system that is based on mist. The second system uses volcanic tuff as an alternative to soil. All of the systems used here save water. The agriculture sector consumes 52% of Jordan's water resources, but contributes only 4% to GDP. This is good if the water is used in a beneficial way for food security, but we should not export our water abroad through watermelon and water-intensive vegetables while we suffer from water shortage in Jordan. The disparity has urged water experts to call for tougher regulations and for widened use of water conservation systems within the sector. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Tough conditions. If you have any news, tips, or feedback for the show, again, you can email us at business at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. And that's the latest of the NTD Business team and myself, Paul Graney. You can still catch NTD Evening News, though. That's with Stephanie Cox at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Follow me on Twitter, too, if you're there. For NTD Business, that's all for today. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you tomorrow.